Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast is the Reverend Dr. Anne-Marie S. Kidder. Uh, Anne-Marie is a native of Germany. She was born in Ulm, Germany. And she came to the United States in 1983 on a Rotary International Scholarship. It was shortly after that that I became acquainted with her as a student in one of my classes I was teaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And since that time, Anne Marie has gone on to do great and wonderful things in the Lord's work. Uh, she is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA has served on the pastoral staffs of several uh, congregations, is currently an assistant professor at the Ecumenical Theological Seminary in Detroit, Michigan, and also the interim pastor at First Presbyterian Church at South Lyon, Michigan. She is a great writer as well as a wonderful speaker. She's written seven books, and I want to talk particularly about three of them today Mm -hmm. on the subjects of Solitude, Celibacy, and Confession. But before we get to that, I'm going to ask her say just a little bit about her upbringing in Germany and uh, how she got to America and where she got an interest in all these very uh, un-Presbyterian kind of things, <laughs> confession, <laughs> celibacy, and so forth. Thank you, Dr. George. Well, first up front, uh, I was, yes, I was raised in Germany, born and raised in Germany, educated in Berlin in the humanist tradition, uh, went to a, uh, a gymnasium uh, that is um, a secondary school that uh, forced us to study three foreign languages, and uh, one of them was also Latin. And uh, I also was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, uh, shortly after Vatican II, we still continued, it seemed, the Mass in Latin, so that the uh, my my childhood upbringing, or at least my childhood piety, was certainly shaped by by that uh, liturgical tradition. Also, I grew up in Bavaria, where of course they have the most beautiful churches. <laughs> and uh, then, um, after uh, quite a few years of uh, uh, losing any interest in the church, came here to the United States, and would would. Surprised me was to see that people seem to enjoy worship for the preaching, uh, for the word that was proclaimed, uh, whereas my experience with the church had been mostly that one went to church for the musical offerings or for the aesthetics of the sanctuary or the the uh uh the the beauty of the building mm-hmm. so that was a, a new discovery and that puzzled me certainly and uh my puzzlement then uh um was uh well if you will it uh it was uh it led me then to to explore what it was that drew people to the church what it was that they found there and heard there in what to me were sometimes um, uh, structures that resembled a pole barn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, so I ended up actually in a Baptist church. 
that was down in Georgia. And uh, so the Baptists then um, had a hold of me. And, um, and this is when I knew they, you were that's when you, that. yeah. that's when That's when you knew me, uh, and I thought I had come home then. <laughs> I had discovered the Word and preaching. And um, I remember you yeah. as a as a student with a very lively faith, yes, a great yes. testimony for Jesus yes, Christ, and yes. a love for the church, yes, and a love for people. And I think you probably still are like that, <laughs> <laughs> though in a Presbyterian modality now. It seems to me that your writing, in particular, has transcended some of these denominational affiliations, as important as they are. And I appreciate you know, your commitment as a minister of the church and so forth. But you're really writing about the Christian life. You're, you're writing about what we often call today somewhat loosely defined spirituality or spiritual theology. And that's something that all Christians are interested in, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, uh, free church, uh, whatever your denomination, because uh, this has to do with what it means to be a person of faith alive in Jesus Christ and how you live that out and the life of prayer and faithfulness that we're called to. And so I wanted to talk about three themes that emerge in your books. In fact, you've written books about each one of these subjects. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can just talk a little bit about each one of them, though they're, they're each very deep and we could spend a long time. <laughs> but let, let's talk a little bit, starting with solitude, and then we'll go to celibacy and finally confession. So solitude, what is solitude and why should Christians be concerned about it? Uh, well, the solitude, that the, the topic emerged out of celibacy. Now, celibacy is something that uh, really has to do with sex. And so, um, you know, if it's presented that way, uh, it's perhaps easier to uh, to get into, but that was the starting point. So I'd you started written, with celibacy. I and did then start went to with celibacy. Ce- yes, okay. I did start with celibacy, mm-hmm. and the celibacy issue uh, uh, came up because I was single, and I asked myself, where does the Protestant Church have a theology for the single life? Um, you know, what about those of us who are single? Uh, is there is there a valid life a, a, a theology of the the single life is that out there? Uh, of course, that was my personal question, and uh, I did not really see it. I, what I witnessed was that uh, in the church, uh, one either was married already or one strove to be married, and that was the way in which one lived out uh, the, the, the Christian life. <clears throat> well, that is then what, uh, what, set, what started me off to explore where in the Bible we have single people, so to speak, uh, who give their whole life to the Lord. And then in the New Testament, again, uh, explored that. Of course, we have Jesus there as a one who is, who is single. And then moved on to the early writings, the apocryphal acts. Now there, I had hit gold. <laughs> I had struck gold. I had, or oil or whatever. <laughs> it was, it was fabulous. Because almost, it seemed, the majority, probably 80% of these writings dealt with this very issue, which was my issue in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so here I encountered it 
in the second century. And these stories then uh, began to point uh, to a spiritual discipline that had um, flowered at the time and eventually had transformed into the first monastic rule in the West, the Benedictine rule. Now, again, mind you, my my background was that there is nothing between the biblical age and the 16th century. So this was a phenomenal discovery for me to find, to see that out of praxis now evolves a creed, a, a dogma, if you will. And so that interested me. And it, continuing the study then uh, from the early monastic rules uh, and then also exploring the uh, Desert Fathers and Desert Mothers, I could see how it had developed. The Virgin Mary played a key role because she became um, the, the emblem, if you will, of the Christ-bearer, of the one who gave birth to Christ, just as we can give birth to Christ if we are single-minded and focused on Christ then we become Christ bearers too. So you, you've developed what I would call a positive Protestant appropriation of the tradition of celibacy. And you see yes. it as a God-given way to live the Christian life, not yes. for everybody, but certainly for some people, yeah. and we shouldn't uh, you know, have a prohibition against it and so forth. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, I want to ask you um, two very common kind of responses to that point of view. Uh, critical responses and see what you would say about it. The one is celibacy seems to elevate the single life, the, ce the celibate life, at the expense of the goodness of sexuality and God created us uh, with bodies. And yes. So yes. this sort of Gnostic dualism that's lingering there from the early church. Uh, how do you respond to people who say celibacy is really... Uh, just a semi-Gnostic way of getting uh, back to uh, a more uh, a le less than full appreciation of God's creation. Well, I respond by saying that uh, the married life or the ability to be married, to have a fruitful life in marriage, is a gift from God. And conversely, the ability to be truly fruitful in the single life is a gift from God. And it cannot just be swapped and exchanged. And uh, some of us are gifted in being married because it is it provides an arena for the full flowering of our spiritual gifts. And some of us are... Uh, not called to that, are called to the single life. Problem is culture, including the church. In fact, the church is the worst accessory to the crime, <laughs> if you will. We are not uh, encouraging people, Christians, to explore the single life as an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, so that creates this 
kind of a false understanding maybe that we have in our minds that anyone who does that, uh, either something's missing, they did, they weren't able to get married or whatever. Uh, and so there, there's in a positive sense that this may be indeed what God is calling me to do. Now, we have in our Protestant tradition, evangelical tradition, lots of examples of I think of missionaries, for example, yes. men and women who lived yes. a single life and kind of like you know Paul's justification to serve the Lord yeah. more fully, but it's it's almost like that's an exception to the rule, yes. and we don't really have a positive working out of this theology, and that's what you've tried to do, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. That's mm-hmm. what I have tried to do. The current debates that we hear a lot about the sex abuse scandals in the Catholic Church are often laced with the argument, well, if the priests were allowed to be married, then this wouldn't happen. But that's really a way that does not understand the theological foundation of the gifts and the spiritual gifts. A priest enters the priesthood with a call and knows beforehand what the frame for the call entails. We too, as Christians, respond to a call, more or less aware of what that call will mean concretely. That is, it comes with a sacrifice. But the beauty of responding to the call is that we become fully um, authenticated, fully free, fully living out that which God has already given us. Mm. And so that is what I try to do, that it is is, um, a a greater sense of fullness and, and a greater sense of freedom. And any any kind of no that we say means also a yes and every yes we may, we make we say is also a no mm. and it mm. works the same way with marriage when i get married i also say no to the single life mm-hmm. conversely when i say yes to the single life i say no to marriage mhm uh, let's talk about solitude because you say your interest in solitude kind of grew out of your focus on celibacy. Uh, and I guess, first of all, what is the difference between solitude and isolation? Because solitude is a word that a lot of people are very afraid of, and they think of it almost in the sense of uh, being lonely, being mm-hmm. alone yes. and lonely and isolated. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about solitude as a spiritual discipline as opposed to this other idea of isolation and loneliness. Uh, well, we are, uh, we are afraid of loneliness, and uh, we try, this is probably human nature, we are community animals. Uh, we are, we're people who need community and need connection and need to know that we are loved and that we can give love. And uh, isolation is really, uh, at least the way I, I would define it, isolation means that we are curbed in our ability to give love and to receive love. Now, the irony is 
that a lot of people live in isolation even though they are engaged in community activities. Mm -hmm. It is as if on the surface their activities are with others. But beneath, they engage in these activities because they experience isolation, the inability to feel loved, to be received by others, and to receive and give love. Mm -hmm. Uh, In your book on solitude, you quote Thomas Merton, in which he says that solitude is not a condition but an activity. Yes. So... uh, would you say then that it's possible, just the opposite of what you said, it is possible to practice solitude even in the midst of other people, just yes. as one can be isolated, right. surrounded yes. by lots of... So yes. how do you do that? What, what, how, how does one cultivate um, the spirit and practice of solitude when so much of our evangelical culture seems to work against it? Busy, busyness, activity... Yes. Uh, Talk to me about that. How how can I find a life of solitude when I have uh, so many appointments tomorrow? I've got to meet you know fifteen people. I've got seventeen committee meetings. Help me. <laughs> well, solitude, when defined positively as a spiritual discipline, is being alone with God. Uh, being with the one who is the one and aloneness could be construed as being finding once all in the one being Mm -hmm. alone with the one and uh, we all know we need alone time but not necessarily to be with the one who is our all uh, so to practice solitude is a form of practicing aloneness with the one mm. in whom we are alone because he speaks to us and we speak to him. He creates us. We need to direct all we are and have toward him. So to practice solitude is a remembering whose we are, wherever we are, really. And perhaps to remember that the one who invites us into this kind of solitude, this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a divine community. Yes. A holy society yes. of eternal yes. love, of giving yes. and receiving. So it, it doesn't reinforce isolation, but it, it, it releases us into community to know such a God and to be alone with such a God. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Um, now, one more thing on solitude. Uh, you know, we have all these uh, gadgets and gadgets <laughs> and cell phones and Wi-Fi and iPads and who knows what's coming next. Uh, how has the current technological culture uh, made more difficult or facilitated uh, particularly solitude as a spiritual discipline. Do you sense this is a problem or could become a problem or not? Whether it is a problem I cannot say. I have to struggle 
what whether it is a problem for me. Uh, so I do monitor my own technological addiction and dependencies very carefully. Talk about that. I'm really interested in it. <laughs> I remember you saying, I do not wear a watch <laughs> because <laughs> I will not be beholden to a mechanical instrument on my body. I say I do not have a cell phone because I will not be beholden to be available at any time, any given minute to some external outside influence. And that is what, uh, that is a very small space, of course, that I have tried to carve out. Other uh, simple practices are that during Lent, I try to check my email instead of 25 times, only two times a day, which is an enormous sacrifice. Mm. The availability to others, too, I try to uh, apportion, if you will. Um, Writing takes a lot of time. It's always, I need a whole block of five hours. And friends and parishioners and students know um, to just call me at certain hours uh, because it interrupts that alone time. Mm -hmm. So I guess in my own little way, I've become a a medieval person <laughs> uh, trying to practice what feeds my spirit, really. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell someone else. I know your son, Christian, is, is a technophile, loves to do all these things and gadgets, and not, you know, nonetheless is able to produce these you know, fabulous books. So I think we we just need to gauge what our where our excesses have taken us, mm. where are we headed, and uh, where uh, is pulling back necessary for that for that peace again, and for that time alone with the one with the community, the true community of the Triune God. We were almost out of time, but I, I did want to ask you to say a little bit about uh, your most recent book, Making Confession, Hearing Confession, A History of the Cure of Souls. What a great title. <laughs> What's this book about? The book came about when someone in an adult ed class asked, how can I experience God's forgiveness? I mean, not just hear about it from the pulpit, but really experience it. And so the the first thing that came to mind was, well, Catholics have confession, but we Protestants have very little in terms of that moment, at that structured moment in which we experience God's forgiveness. Call it forgiveness, call it absolution. Now, luckily, I'm a Presbyterian, and I feel very, very blessed. Uh, because, frankly, I wouldn't know where else to go. And we do have a confessional structure in our church. It's communal confession. 
its silent confession, but every worship service at the beginning of the worship is introduced with confession. We confess whether we have done those bad things or not. <laughs> um, and so that, I think, started it off. Uh, the Catholic practice, which of course has fallen into disuse, the Protestant among our tradition, Reformed tradition, use of collective uh, confession, and then um, the various uh, uh, Reformation uh, mainline uh, denominations such as Lutheran and Episcopalian who use it, who offer it, but again, where it is, has fallen somewhat into disuse. And so it set me off on, again, on doing what I love to do, church history, spiritual theology, and uh, uh, found out that the authoritative work on this topic had been written by none other than John T. O'Neill. And, of course, uh, John T. McNeil is the, the, the editor of Calvin's works. And so here I have someone who has done this history that is relatively unknown. When I talked about it to my editor, I'd never heard of it. And so I thought, well, we need to know how through the history of the church, confessional practice have evolved and changed, um, died out, been revived again, and come into new use. And so that's why there's also an appendix of uh, uh, confessional liturgies between lay people, where a lay person can hear confession. So it's a resource. Yeah. Let, let me read to uh, our listeners Eugene Peterson's uh, endorsement of this book. Uh, I was absolutely stunned, he says, on first reading Making Confession, Hearing Confession. Anne-Marie Kidder integrates the many expressions of the subject that honor the basic human need for disclosure, to respond to the hunger for forgiveness, ranging from confession to spiritual direction during these 2,000 years. She expertly discerns the common thread that keeps all these various ways recognizably coherent in their historical and theological underpinnings and their rootedness in the gospel. He says, I welcome this as a critical and timely gift for today's church its congregations and pastors. And I would simply add uh, my own word of <laughs> endorsement to that wonderful uh, tribute from our friend uh, Eugene Peterson. So thank you for this book. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for all of your writings, for calling us as a church uh, to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it's lived out in the practices of faith, in the practices of, of our spiritual life. Uh, particularly as it relates to these things we've talked about today, celibacy and solitude and confession. We're honored to have you with us here at Beeson Divinity School. I should tell our listeners that tomorrow, Anne-Marie Kidder will preach in our series that we're doing on the, on the Nicene Creed. And we have assigned her the topic of preaching from the book of Job, on the resurrection of Christ. <laughs> now, can you give us just a very brief preview of uh, what our uh, people in chapel will actually hear from you when you speak on this? I address the two great questions that I have had on my mind 
in years and years and years of having to listen to Easter sermons rather than giving them. (laughs) (laughs) And the two big questions were, what does Easter mean to me? And secondly, why the worldwide alleluia of Easter joy? Mm, That's great. And for those who are interested in hearing that sermon, they can get it by checking out our website. Well, thanks so much for sharing this time with us. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us, and we thank God for you and for your ministry. Thank you, Dr. George. It's been my pleasure. God bless you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. We welcome your feedback, suggestions, and support. Beeson Divinity School is an evangelical, interdenominational divinity school training men and women for service in the Church of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work And we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.